Remember last time that we were all together, we were looking at the fact that we're going to have a new kingdom to look forward to. And we looked at the realization that there's going to be a real judgment. Now, this time we want to focus in in the beginning just on the life in the resurrected body, look at some of the things that we can glean from Scripture regarding what the resurrected body will look like. And then I'm going to end on just a summary of the three major views of the rapture and kind of pull our eschatology together and we'll conclude with why it all matters. So with that introduction, let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you again so much that we can gather together this evening as your saints, those who are called out of the world through faith in your Son. And Lord, we ask that you would help us think well upon the Word and that you would help us understand these deep things and also you can convict us of any sin that might be in our lives so that we would uh, forsake it and that we would live for the King and the kingdom that's coming, and that we'd be excited about these great promises that you have, and that we'd be about your great commission, we'd be about contending for the faith, and lifting one another up in prayer. And we ask that you would accomplish that through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me get started straight away. I've got a lot to cover. I want to talk about our resurrected bodies. Now, remember, we hit on that last time. We got into it, but I want to just talk about it again, reiterate, first of all, the fact of the resurrection. I want to bring up two passages, and the first one is out of John 5, 28 through 29. And if you recall, Jesus was talking to um, his disciples. He says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now notice there's two resurrections here, um, a resurrection of those who are good and those who are evil. But it's interesting, the amillennialist will take a passage like this and they'll say, well, because both resurrections happen simultaneously, it must be one event. And therefore, they say, well, there's only really one resurrection. It's just the difference is whether you're good or bad, whether it's going to, to be with the Lord or to the eternal fire. And therefore, they take passages about the thousand years in Revelation 20, and they say, well, that really can't exist. Remember, friends, oftentimes in the Gospels and even in the Old Testament, we'll see events that are actually separated by large spans of time put together in one text. An example that you can always use with your amillennialist friends is where Jesus is teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. Remember in Luke chapter 4? And he cites Isaiah 61. And remember, he stops midway through Isaiah 61. Is is it 1 through 2, I think? And um, he stops midway because it's interesting. The first portion of the passage is about his first advent. The very next words are all about his second advent. So here you have his first and second advent separated by, we don't even know how long because it hasn't happened yet. That is the second advent. But separated at least by thousands of years. And yet they're right together in the Old Testament. And so the same thing often applies here. So Jesus' point isn't to delineate the timing of things, but just to point out that all who are in the ground will one day hear his voice and be raised. And, um, of course, those who trust in him will be raised unto eternal life. That's the main thing. Another passage I want to talk a little bit about that we haven't gotten into, and I don't even have time to delve into all of it. There's so much in this text. But 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17 where Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now let me just stop there. Well, let me finish the sentence. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Stopping there, remember that when we get to 1 Thessalonians 5, he says that he has no need to remind them of the day of the Lord. 
Why? Well, because they knew full well the day of the Lord. We also see that language in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. What's interesting is they were somewhat un- un- uninformed of the fact that those who were asleep, that is dead, would in fact be raised. So it's interesting, the teaching about the day of the Lord was something that they were very familiar with. And so just keep that in your back of your mind. It's interesting that there's a change. They're uninformed a little bit about what happens to those who die as far as being resurrected. So he's going to, Paul's going to remedy that now. He says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. A few things I want to point out. First of all, notice this phrase, the Lord himself. This is what's called an adjectival intensive. And when you see this, when it talks about the Lord himself, you know it can't be a surrogate. And I think it even gives a hint that it can't even be a theophany in the sense that this is no spiritual coming, okay? This is he himself, okay? And we're going to see this again. You're going to see the same language in Luke where it's the Lord himself. And so anytime you see a, again, the himself is what's called a reflexive pronoun, okay? It's himself. And so when you see that, you're going to say, well, that's the Lord. It's him and he is coming. So again, this would get rid of any notion that it's somehow a spiritual coming, Okay, it's the Lord descending bodily, and therefore this is not going to be a secret event. People will know. And so again, we in the pre-trib rapture of viewpoint, we are not beholden to a secret rapture. No, it doesn't have to be secret. In fact, I don't think it will. The other thing I want to point out is notice the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive will remain and remain will also be raised. And what that indicates is all Christians, every single believer from Abraham on, well, for that matter, anybody who has ever died that's believed in Yahweh, all believers will in fact partake in this resurrection. Now, what's interesting is that I think that's going to create some trouble for the post-trib people. And, and I'm going to explain why later when we get to that segment, okay? Because remember, they have to have everybody raised at the end of the 70th week. Well, the only problem is, is, remember, that's Revelation 19 is about when Jesus comes. That's their rapture passage. That is the post-tribbers. But in Revelation 20, verse 4, there's a resurrection of the martyrs during the 70th week. Well, the question should be, why weren't they raised in Revelation 19? That's when all, you know, because every single Christian, every single believer is going to be raised. Okay, and so we'll be pointing that out as we go. But the point here is in these passages, you want to see that the resurrection is a fact. It will happen. Jesus has signed his name to it. Now let's talk about the nature of the resurrection. It's a physical resurrection. It's a physical body, tangible, but yet it's also called spiritual. And so I want to wrestle with in what way is it spiritual and what way is it physical. And I'm going to start in Luke 24, 36 through 39. Remember, this is um, Jesus had met those disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then after they wanted to tell the other disciples about what they had seen, and that's where we pick it up here in the narrative. It says, while they were telling these things, that is about what they had encountered with Jesus, he himself, and there's another adjectival intensive, it wasn't a, a mirage, it was Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you, but they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, 
as you see that I have. Now, what's interesting, I think, about this flesh and bones, I'll just give you some insight in how I think. As an American, you and I use the term flesh and blood. And I always thought it was peculiar that he used flesh and bones. And I remembered a passage out of Deuteronomy 12.23 where here we see the prohibition of drinking of the blood. Why? Well, because the life was in the blood. And I'll just tell you the waywardness that I went and just give you a little hermeneutics lesson. This is how I used to reason. I thought, I read this passage, it says, only be sure not to eat the blood. This is Deuteronomy 12.23. For the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. So I used to reason, well, flesh and blood is what they would normally say. Well, he doesn't have any blood, so therefore he said flesh and bone, and therefore that's evident that he is of, in fact, a spiritual body. Okay, now why is that bad reasoning on my part? Well, because flesh and bone is used time and time and time again in the Old Testament. Okay, Job 2.5, Judges 9.2, Genesis 29.14, 2 Samuel 5, 1, 2 Samuel 19, 12, and it goes on and on and on. Now, why is that important? Well, because this is a phrase that they used, that is the Jewish people used in both Old and New Testament eras, a lot like you and I would use flesh and blood. Okay? So the point is, is we don't ever want to transport our Western American ideas back onto the text. Do you see what I'm saying? And so I was making that error. But now, looking at the evidence... I can say, no, that indicates what Jesus is trying to say there with flesh and bones is just that it was a physical body. Okay, It would be akin for you and I probably saying flesh and blood. He had a physical body. This was not a ghost. This was not a mere spirit. He actually existed, and they could touch him and feel him and even eat with him, as we saw earlier. Okay, now, again, the idea that it's also spiritual, though, is also present in many texts. I want to talk about in what way is it spiritual. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. Now, remember, he's talking to the Corinthians who have a dim view of the physical body. And so he has to prove to them that, no, the physical body is important and it's going to be raised incorruptible. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead, Paul says, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, notice the contrast. We, I try to color code them because I, I like that. <laughs> it just They stand out. So you have perishable and imperishable. You have dishonor and glory. You have weakness and power and natural and spiritual. And so he's making these contrasts. We're imperishable. We're going to be, glory, we're going, we're going to be in glory, power, and we're going to have a spiritual body. That's the nature of our resurrected body. And the first and foremost of importance to Paul was that it was imperishable. Our physical bodies are never going to decay again. And remember when God made everything in Genesis 1, he said it was very good. Now that would contrast with the way with the Hellenistic Greeks thought where they thought everything physical was just evil and God would do away with it. Not so. God is going to take what is physical and he's going to recreate it so it's imperishable. We'll no longer have the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, more than likely, okay? We're not going to have this decay imposed upon us. Uh, notice it's also going to be a body of glory, never to be shamed again. Remember in Genesis 3, 7, Adam and Eve, when they discovered that they had sinned, they realized, or I should say when they sinned, they discovered that they were naked, didn't they? And they were shamed. They were shamed of themselves and they sowed fig leaves. Never again will they be ashamed. They will, in fact, be in glory and God will, in fact, they will be a perfect representative of what God had created. 
In fact, one of the neat things about marriage is it's a place where men and women again can be together and not feel shame. Are you with me? And that's why when people defile the marriage bed through extramarital action and and so forth, whether it be um, hetero or homosexual, it's defiling what God had intended. Okay, And so it's a big thing that the marriage bed is established where people can once again have a, a place where it's safe to be naked and not ashamed. And it's a big thing with God. But eventually, friends, in our resurrected body, we'll be, have a body that glorifies God. Notice it's going to be in power, but notice the power is it's raised in power. It was sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. So the focus here isn't on what you and I are doing. In other words, we're not exerting our power. The focus is on the God who raised in power. So the point is, is God gets all the glory because forever we'll be demonstrating his power. Okay, that's the focal point of the power. Then finally, it's a spiritual body. And what here's what I'm going to claim is that the spiritual body, it's a spiritual body in the sense that it's different than a physical body that we have today. It, it's not, and I'll show you some evidence of this, it, it doesn't seem to be beholden to the same restrictions that you and I have. But the way that you're going to see the biblical writers often use the spiritual body is, and I think that's what Paul's doing here, is he's using it as a way of talking about the new order. It's a body that will never perish, as opposed to the old fleshly order and those things that did perish. So in some sense, think of two different realms again. It was the old realm, that of the flesh, and the natural body, that's the old order. And those things weren't designed to last. But the thing in the, the, the spiritual body, the things of the new order, they're designed to last. Okay, now let me just show you some evidence, for instance, of how first, in 1 Peter 3.18, how he handles the idea of a spiritual body. And it's a very interesting passage. Bob knows this one probably pretty well. Uh, verses 19 get pretty hairy. I don't even have time to get into that. But 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes this. He says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, there's a couple different thoughts in this passage. One is, in the flesh is what's called a dative of sphere. Any time you see an in, remember that concept, you're either in Christ or you're in Satan, right? Colossians 1.13, he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You're either in one, one sphere or the other. Well, oftentimes the Bible will use a dative of sphere. And some scholars think that's what's going on here. In other words, in the flesh would indicate that it's, again, referring to this temporary age. But Jesus was made alive in the spirit. Not that he didn't have a physical body, but his body was consistent with the new age to come. Now, there might be some partial truth in that, but the problem is Jesus ends up going preaching in this spirit to the spirits that were in prison. And so he, in fact, did have more than likely what's being referred to as in his preexistent state in this spiritual body. So the whole point, friends, is the way I think that the flesh and the spirit are being contrasted here is, first and foremost, it's a temporary versus an eternal age, but there's also something different about the spiritual body. It's not limited by space and time, apparently, like you and I are. For instance, in Luke 24, 30 through 31, listen to what Jesus' body does here in the resurrected state. It says, When he reclined with them, He took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And I looked at all the sources, and vanish just means 
vanished, <laughs> disappeared. Okay, I wish I could give you some heavy revy on that, but that's what it means. He disappeared. They couldn't see him anymore. And so, again, obviously you and I can't do that unless we have um, some great uh, magician working with us. We can't do that, but yet he quit in his resurrected body. Let me give you another hint of this, that the spiritual body isn't uh, limited like our physical body now. And yet, again, it's physical. We don't want to deny either or. It's physical. He could eat. He could drink. They touched him. We're going to see that, in fact, here. But yet, it's different. It's not limited. John 20, 26 through 27 Jesus says after eight days, his, or John writes, after eight days his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. Now this is actually a perfect participle here. So it means that in the past, before Jesus came, the doors were shut and they were complete. In fact, shut is better rendered locked. Then it says, and stood in their midst. So the idea that Jesus came even though things were shut indicates that there was no way for him to get in there. And so he does something in to a certain degree, miraculous. He uh, appears in their presence. And he says to them, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. So now he has hands, so we know that's physical. And reach here, your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And so again, friends, he has hands inside. He's really physical. Remember in Luke 24, Jesus ate bread with the disciples, uh, those who he met on the road to Emmaus. So he really is physical, yet he can do things like appear and reappear. And by the way, that's one of the reasons I think it's very important that Jesus ascends from the Mount of Olives at his ascension the way he does, because he has to show the disciples a finality to his appearances and his reappearances, or you know, disappearing and reappearing. He has to show finality to that. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why the ascension was so important. It gave them finality. And they knew that the next time they saw him, it would be in glory at his coming. So now what I want to do is I want to transition. Now, what I did is I just gave you as much data as we really have about what the resurrected body is like. It's going to be physical. We're going to eat and hopefully not get fat. (laughs) We're never going to die. We're not going to be limited by time and space. But we're also going to, in our resurrected bodies, we're going to reign with Christ. Now, the common misconception that our culture has today is I think a lot of people are almost thinking that heaven may be boring because they think that we're going to be in some ethereal form sitting around on clouds strumming harps. And that does sound very boring indeed. But as you're going to see, we actually have a very purposeful existence with Christ because we will be reigning with him. And this reign that I'll be pointing out is a political reign. He will be reigning over the nations, and you and I will be reigning with him as the adopted brothers and sisters in the Lord through our adoption in Jesus Christ. So let's talk about the millennial kingdom. And I want to show you again, Revelation 2, 26 through 27, where Jesus says this, and I think that originally it was the message is to Thyatira. But again, we see that it says, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. That applies to every Christian. To him, now here comes Psalm 2, 8 through 9, to him I will give authority over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. Now, notice this term rule. It's actually probably a little stronger than just rule. It means to rule in a violent way. And you can tell even from the context. Notice it says rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken. Let me just give you some evidence of this. In the Septuagint, Psalm 2.9, it translates this term poimaino, which is usually translated shepherd or to govern. 
But most scholars that I've been reading say there should be a nuance, perhaps like destroy. The evidence of that is in the Masoretic text. Now, this is the Hebrew text. More than likely what happened is the LXX translators, the Septuagint, they actually vowel-pointed rawah wrong. So they So the Hebrew text has consonants, then it has vowel points. And they think that they probably goofed up the vowel points because the original Masoretic text, more than likely, this is probably more original, most scholars believe, has to do with break, shatter, or smash. So let me just read it to you again. This is how I think it should probably be better rendered. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall shatter them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. The whole point that I'm trying to show you is it's more than likely, it's more than just rule, it's a violent rule. And that shows you the absolute authority that Christ has over the nations. Now think about it. We're going to talk about this a little bit later. There's going to be the unregenerate unbelievers who are going to be living during the millennial kingdom. And we know at the end in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, that they're going to rebel, and Christ will have to quench that rebellion by calling fire down from heaven. But think about it. During the whole time of the millennial kingdom, the unbelievers, every time they step out of line, they're going to be held into account. And that very well, maybe you and I have part of that, but a sin will not be tolerated. And these people, by the end of the thousand years, more than this is, you know, I'm just speculating, they'll probably be seething. Okay, why? Because none of their sins are ever going to be tolerated because he's ruling them. Not that it's not a loving rule, but it's just a rule that doesn't tolerate sin. It's a righteous rule. And so, again, I, I think it gives us evidence that this is going to be a rule where sin is not tolerated. Okay. Uh, let me just show you where Psalm 2, 8 and 9 is uh, reiterated again. Revelation 12, 5 talking about Israel giving birth to the Messiah. And she, that is Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So again, the same concept you see here. Now, we see, in fact, that we have this universal reign with Christ. I should have put universal reign with Christ because in Revelation 5.10, notice you and I will reign with him. It says you have made them, that is all believers, to be a kingdom of priests to your God, and they will reign upon the earth. And friends, I think this is a great passage, again, to bring up to our amillennialist friends who say that there is no kingdom on the earth, but there's only going to be the kingdom in heaven. In fact, they believe we're technically in the, the millennial kingdom now. Okay, And so notice this calls for the saints to reign upon the earth. So the kingdom is first coming to the earth. And in fact, that's to a certain degree, that's what Revelation is about. It's about God's kingdom finally coming to the earth and him establishing the kingdom that was promised in Daniel 2.28 that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Now, let me give you an important passage here. In Zechariah 14.16, it says, Then it will come about, remember this is after the destruction of the nations that surrounded Jerusalem, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And again, this is part of God's rule, Jesus' rule with an, with an iron scepter. You know, he'll be ruling them in such a way where sin will not be tolerated and it will not be allowed. Notice this phrase, very important. It says, any who are left of all the nations... That implies that there will be survivors who enter into the millennial kingdom. What I'm going to do later on in this lecture is prove that I think that those would have to be believers. And I'll be making the case that unbelievers will not be making it into the kingdom. 
Okay, that is the millennial kingdom. And, and I'll explain why that becomes important. So this is a very important passage because it, it really clearly indicates that there will be Gentiles in this kingdom. And from the data that we'll surmise from other passages, you'll see that these have to be believers that end up going into the millennial kingdom. Okay. Now, the other thing I want to point out is the Feast of Booths. Very interesting. The Feast of Booths is the very last feast that the Israelites had uh, for their harvest, according to Leviticus 23. And it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it commemorates the fact that God uh, tabernacled with his people in the wilderness. And so here will be the ultimate tabernacling, if that's a term. God will tabernacle with his people once for all. But it also has to do with the last harvest feast. So if you think about it, the Jews, the picture of them is they're always pictured as the first fruits. That is the wave offering. But yet the final feast, the Feast of Booths, commemorates and celebrates the final ingathering of the complete harvest. And of course, it's interesting that now even the Gentiles are coming to give praise and worship and honor to Yahweh, okay, to Christ. And so, I, I, so the imagery there is that the, finally the full harvest has come in. So very neat indeed. Now, the whole point here, though, is I think we're going to have part of this rain as well. So we'll be reigning with him. The Lord will not send rain on those who do not come up to this feast. So he will be reigning the, these people harshly yet justly and lovingly. Now, the next section I want to get into is I want to make the case that I think we're going to be raptured to the new Jerusalem. Nowhere is it specifically stated, but I think we can make a good case for it. Now, let me talk about John 14, 2 through 3, a very important passage regarding uh, the rapture. And I think it has implications of where we're raptured to. Jesus says, in my Father's house, and and let me just set the stage. Remember, Jesus is going to be leaving his disciples, and so he wants to quench any of the fears and the angst that they have. And so that's where we pick it up here in John 14, 2 through 3. He says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. First thing I want to point out is the dwelling places. The term for that is mone in Greek, and the old King James Version used to translate that as mansions. It's probably better rendered dwelling places, like rooms. I don't mean to diminish what we're going to have. The room could be very large. It could be a a block. I don't know. But the whole point is it's rooms. It's not mansions. Okay, but don't get down about that. This is going to be a beautiful place, right? But, but I love this phrase, too. Uh, friends, this is such a kind... I, I love this phrase. And I remember um, R.C. Sproul, even though we... Just, that's another thing, by the way. R.C. and I don't uh, agree eschatologically on a lot of things. But yet, I remember him talking about this passage here. And he said, he talked about where Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. And I'll never forget him talking about if there's one man that the, they could trust, it's Jesus. In other words, Jesus, their God, their Savior, and the Messiah in the flesh is saying, if this is all a bunch of hogwash and you're going to be so much worm food in the ground after you die, if there was somebody that would tell it to you straight, it's me. But these places are real. And friends, the point to this idea that it's a dwelling place, and again, the term place here is used, tapas. It's a place. Heaven isn't a state of mind. It's not a fanciful hope, it's a place. And Christ has signed his name to it. You and I are going to a place. And if it weren't so, he would have been straight with us. But it is so. We're going to an actual place. Now, some other things I think are interesting in this passage, and they're very very subtle, but notice where he says, for I go. He says, I go 
And he's, he's going to prepare a place. Now, this term for preparation, by the way, would be the same for like the preparation for the feast. So you get the idea that Jesus is actually preparing something. I mean, he's preparing as if he, a person would for a feast or a, an event. And he's preparing a literal place for us. And then he says it again. And this is a form of a hypothetical syllogism. He says, if I go, and he is going, and prepare a place for you, here's the then, then I will come again and receive you to myself. So again, he's coming again. In this term, parlbambano, is this term of affection. He's receiving and bringing us to himself. And remember I showed you in Matthew 24, I don't know if I mentioned um, in Luke 17, but we saw that parlbambano is used of the rapture. Remember there's two that are grinding, one is taken and the other is left. Well, the debate is, is the one taken taken in judgment or is he taken in salvation? Well, the term is paralambano, so he's taken in salvation. It's the same term that's used here in John 14. But what's interesting is it's predicated on him going. Now, where was Jesus going? He certainly wasn't preparing a place on earth. In fact, we know he was preparing them because he was going to the heavenly realm. So when he says he's coming to receive us to himself, he has to be receiving us and bringing us to where he is. That is where he's going, right? And where is he preparing this place? Does anybody know that Jesus has been on CNN or Fox News preparing a place? No. Why? Because it's in the heavenly realm. So when he says, I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Notice he's not coming to where we are, but rather he's going to take us to be where he is. And so this is a very important passage that shows that we're going to be in the heavenly realm with him, okay? And I think that creates, again, trouble for the post-trib perspective because this seems to indicate that when he comes for us, we're going to be in the heavenly realm. Remember in Revelation 19 what happens, the post-trib perspective is that Revelation 19, 11 through 16, is both the rapture and the second coming. But what happens is the saints meet the Lord in the air according to the post-trib view, but they keep descending and they descend to the earth with the Lord. But they never end up being where Jesus is. And where was he? Well, he's going somewhere. Well, where? Where he's, well, we're where he's preparing a place, which is in the heavenly realm. So to this, to me, friends, this passage gives the post-trib view fits because this indicates that he has to be bringing us to the heavenly realm. So Revelation 19 can't be talking about that because that's where Jesus descends to the earth. Are you with me? And so, therefore, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about, I think, preparing a place, and I think it's probably the New Jerusalem. I'll make that case. Um, by the way, um, there are some scholars who try to claim that this is a spiritual thing. I just want you to be aware of this argument, that the things that Jesus is promising, and I don't know how they get away with it because it's so obvious that it's a place that he's talking about, but they'll try to claim that the promises Jesus is promising are spiritual, that Jesus and um, God, they're coming to us spiritually to make their abode. And what they'll do is they'll cite later on John 14:23. I just want to clarify that in case you see this argument. So let me read John 14:23 and explain what they mean. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone, by the way, he's answering Judas, not, um, not Iscariot. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And so what, the, what happens is the, the, the scholars who are claiming this is just a spiritual promise, they try to lump John 14, 23 with John 14, 2 through 3. The problem is there's two different things. This is about us being taken to the Lord, 
John 14.23 is about the Lord coming to us because just three verses later, John 14.26, Jesus promises when he leaves, he's sending the second parakletos, the second advocate, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit. So the point is, this is how good we have it. When Jesus ascends into the heavenly realm, he's living to make constant intercession for us. But not only do we have that parakletos, he's the original advocate, but we also have the Holy Spirit who lives with us. Remember, he prays for us, he intercedes for us. He's also our helper. So Jesus' point is that we're not left alone. While he's making preparations for us in the Father's house, the Holy Spirit is still with us, so God has not left us. He has not abandoned us. The third person of the Trinity is with us. So that's what that's about. So again, this is about us being received to the Lord. This is about the Lord coming to us in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's the distinction. Okay, now let me just make the case again. I think there's even an implication in Acts 7:47 through 15. Let me explain. In this passage, Stephen is giving a sermon and he's rebuking the religious leaders of Israel who think salvation is found in the temple and temple sacrifices and temple worship, but they've completely neglected the Messiah that the temple always pointed to. And so his point here is that God doesn't have to dwell in their building anyway. In fact, he is going to dwell in the building that he has made. And what I'm going to show you is the building that he has made is, in fact, the New Jerusalem, and there's implications here. So Acts 7, 47 through 50, Stephen says this. He says, But it was Solomon who built a house for him, that is the Lord. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Now here we have Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose, my dwelling? And he says, was it not my hand which made all these things? So God will not share his glory with anyone. And at the end of the day, as you'll see, he will tabernacle in the house that he builds. And I think that's exactly uh, what we have in the New Jerusalem. Now, let me give you another passage that talks about the New Jerusalem here in Galatians 4. And I'm going to show you that the New Jerusalem actually exists. And I think it has to exist for this analogy to work. In Galatians 4, 25 through 26, Paul is contrasting two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In Hagar and Mount Sinai, that is the Old Covenant, and it's contrasted to the New Jerusalem, which represents the New Covenant. Okay, So Paul says, now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. Why? Well, because they're still in bondage. They're still trying to keep the law that no man or woman can. In fact, if you miss at one point of the law, you've broken the whole thing. Okay, So they're still in bondage, but Paul contrasts that with the freedom now that we have in the new covenant in Christ. He says, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Now follow the logic here. If the present Jerusalem represents the old covenant and the present Jerusalem exists, would it make any sense for Paul, by way of analogy, to talk about the Jerusalem above if it didn't exist? In other words, you can't contrast something that exists with something that doesn't exist because otherwise you could say, well, the old covenant exists, but the new covenant doesn't. You see, you have to have two things that exist. And so I think, friends, logically, the implication is this Jerusalem above already exists. And I don't know what else it would be other than the new Jerusalem. Okay, So I'm just trying to work you through the logic that I think the new Jerusalem is there. That's where we're going to be raptured to. And again, somewhat conjectural, but I think, I think it's reasonable to think that. So, does the New Jerusalem currently exist? I think it does. Even Hebrews, the author of Hebrews 12:22 through 23, 
Again, he's contrasting those who had access to a tangible mountain, and he's talking about you and I who we have access to a better mountain. It's not tangible. We can't see it, but it really exists. That is the heavenly Jerusalem. The writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. Now the kicker is this Jerusalem really exists. It's just that it's not tangible. You and I can't touch it. But it's really there. And the point is through faith in Christ, that's the Jerusalem that we're really a part of. And so what's so beautiful then is when we come to Revelation 21, we finally see these, these things that are alluded to finally this new Jerusalem actually comes. Revelation 21, 1 through 2, John writes, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice it's from God. It's not made by man. Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Very interesting, this term made ready. It's actually a, a participial form of this verb, etoimatso, it's actually a perfect passive, meaning that it was made again in the past. And we don't know when it was completed, but the idea is it was made ready. Well, it's interesting. Jesus says what in John 14, 2 through 3? I go prepare a place for you. And so at some point, he, he must have made it ready. And so now it's time. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It was made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so it's just a beautiful picture. So Christ has completed it, and now it's descending in the new creation for us. It's a beautiful picture. So the whole point is, friends, when we're raised to meet Christ, or I should say raptured to meet Christ, I think the place that he's bringing us to is probably the new Jerusalem. That would probably make the most sense. And then in our schematic, we would be there seven years. At that time, we would leave with him. It's time. And we go reign on the earth. And after that's completed it descends down and you have the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Now let me just give some descriptions of the new Jerusalem because it's so beautiful. I just want, um, I don't have a lot of comments on this, but let me just read through it a little bit because this is going to be our eternal home and I think it behooves us just to read some of the text. Revelation 21, 11 through 14, this is the new Jerusalem. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper that had a great and high wall with 12 gates And at the gates, twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So here we have both the apostles and the twelve tribes of Israel being commemorated in this beautiful new Jerusalem. Now, I want to show you the security of her walls. I think this is very fascinating to me, and I hope it is to you. Talking about walls, why would you need walls in a city where we're, we have complete security because we're with God? And let me just talk about that. Again, it's somewhat conjectural, but let me read this passage. Revelation 21, 16 through 19. This is the, the way the city is laid out. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city, that was the angel, with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measures its wall, 72 yards. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Uh, So, friends, here the the city is laid out like a square. And I I was thinking 1,500 miles, I think it's about Eau Claire to Seattle. I think that's about 1,500 miles. And that's just, that would be one length of it. And it's cubed. So it goes that high. 
And so it's, I mean, think about how large of a city that is. That's the New Jerusalem. That's massive. That's exciting. And, and remember the picture or the, the view of it, it looked, John said, like a, a jasper, like a diamond. That's a, that's a beautiful looking city indeed. Now, the other thing I want to point out is that the wall, it has a wall that's 72 yards, and most people believe that this is the thickness of it. Now, the question is, why would you need walls in Jerusalem? And remember what Jerusalem symbolizes, the abode of God's people who had been molested and hurt throughout all the ages, and all of a sudden now we're living where those who are in perdition are outside the walls, and the imagery there is the walls are so thick, I think that ends up being, if I did my math right, it's like 216 feet thick. If you multiply three times 72, is that what it comes out to? I think it does. 216 feet thick. And the jasper, most scholars believe it's probably a reference to diamond. Diamond is the hardest substance that naturally occurs in nature. I think depleted uranium maybe is denser. I don't know. That's what they use in the M1 anti-tank rounds. Um, But that's man-made, okay? But this is a diamond. So it's the hardest substance that naturally occurs And it's 216 feet thick. And why? Why does God do that? I think, friends, he's showing us that there's people who are in and there's people who are out. And the people who are in are secure forever. It's imagery. We don't need it. But the image there is God's people will rest securely forever. And it it, it is overkill. I mean, 216 foot thick diamond walls. It's overkill. That's the point. God is glorious. It's overkill. Everything he does is overkill for his glory. And it's beautiful. And we can say, yes, Lord, we we remain with you forever in complete security. And so anyway, it's just something to think about, just how magnificent this will be to see. Well, I'm going to come back to that again later on in the end. Revelation 21, 22 through 27, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the king of the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Indicating that the kings of the earth, the earth is going to be again reestablished, but they'll be believers. Uh, so believers will have apparently run of the mill here. We'll have the earth, and we'll have the new Jerusalem, and it's going to be a big time. Are we going to have, we're, there's a lot of things to look forward to. Now, here's the point, though, friends, is that the Lord God will be our temple. He will be uh, tabernacling with us. And I'll never forget a very godly man who um, taught me Hebrew. His name is Dr. Jason DeRoshi. He told his boys one time, they were getting of the age where they were starting to like girls, you know, and they were in a checkout lane. And I'll never forget this. They were looking at um, one of the magazines. You know they're not the nicest magazines, if you know what I'm saying, at the checkout lines in the grocery stores. And I'll never forget this. This sounds very harsh, but think about what he's saying to his boys. He said, boys, what do you want to see, that magazine or the New Jerusalem? Uh, and <laughs> and you remember Jesus says, if our, he warns us in Matthew 5.20, if our righteousness did not exceed that of the Pharisees, we would not see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that cuts two ways. First of all, the only way you can have the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees is through faith in Christ because he is our righteousness. But those who are, in fact, of Christ have to act in such a way where their actions are consistent with those who are believers in Christ. So faith and actions go hand in hand. And he was warning his boys, remember, what are your eyes really longing for? Where are the desires of your heart? Are there things in eternity or are there the things here and now? Because you can't live for both. 
And I thought, wow, great application. So friends, maybe, I don't know what all the issues that we all have here tonight, but do you want to see these things? Do you want to live with Christ? Do you want to see him personally? And do you want to see the new Jerusalem? And if so, let's guard our eyes in the lusts of the flesh and all the other sins that so easily entangles, entangles us and let's live for this this city that is to come in the Lord in its presence. I think that's how it applies to us. Now, with that, let me leave that and talk about um, the three main rapture positions. And what I want to do is just kind of get our hands on what we have learned this year or this in this session of eschatology. And I haven't been able to give a lot of time to the mid-tribulation perspective, and I'm not going to even t- tonight in the post-tribulation perspective, but I want to hit those now to be honest with you, the pre-wrath view, in my opinion, and I mean this with all love because, again, there's brothers who hold to the pre-wrath position who they're going to be in the kingdom every bit as much as I am and probably ahead of me, okay? But I think the pre-wrath view, in my opinion, is the weakest of the views. But I spent a lot of time on that because it's been a hot-button uh, topic. So I want to explore some of the other views now, and I want to talk about the mid-tribulational view. Scholars like, uh, good scholars like Gleason Archer, he's a very good Old Testament scholar. He would hold to this position, and I want to talk about uh, it a little bit. First of all, the mid-tribulation rapture, of course, means that the rapture happens just prior to the great tribulation. And so he would see the day of the Lord starting here, and therefore the wrath of God starting at the, the abomination that causes desolation where the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple, and therefore we would be raptured prior to that, and therefore we would be spared the wrath of God in that way. Let me give you some of the strengths of the views. First of all, this view does allow for non-glorified saints to enter the millennium. Okay, In other words, you would have saints that possibly would survive this period and they could still enter into the millennial kingdom in, in, um, in non-glorified bodies and therefore populate the millennial kingdom. Number two, it rightly sees focus on the last three and a half years of the 70th week. In other words, when you read the scriptures, there is a focus on the last three and a half years. Okay, there is. But saying that, Daniel 9 does talk about seven years. So the whole point is we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Seven years is important too. But there is a focus on the last three and a half. I'm trying to be kind to them here. They claim to still maintain imminence. Now I'm going to show that that's not exactly true. But these are what they perceive to be the strengths of the view. Now let me show you the weaknesses. Number one, it misses the start of the wrath of God in the broad day of the Lord. Remember I pointed out that the broad day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week? So that's where the wrath of God actually starts. And I'll talk more about this when I get to the post-trib, but remember, you and I, according to Revelation 3.10 and according to 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if this whole period of the 70th week is God's wrath, we must be exempt for it, exempt from it. So the broad day of the Lord, if it starts here, which I think we've proven that it has, and I'll talk more about that again, well, then we have to be exempt from this portion as well. So I think it's weak there. Number two, the 144,000 Revelation 14, they believe is the rapture, but it can't be the raptured saints. In other words, those who hold to the mid-trib view, they believe Revelation 14 is the rapture. So the 144,000 that you see in Mount Zion, that's all the raptured saints, and it's just representative of all the raptured saints. The problem with that is in Revelation 7, it clearly states that the 144,000 are 12,000 from each of the tribes. So we would be doing great, to me, hermeneutic violence to the text to say, well, now they don't really mean 12,000 from every tribe. It really 
they're representatives of all of the saints from all the ages. I don't think that washes. The Bible is very clear in saying that the 144,000 are Jews and they're 12,000 from each tribe. I don't know any other way to take it. So I think that's very weak. Third, imminence, I think, actually is lost. Why? Well, because, remember, imminence is the doctrine that you have an overhanging event that can break upon us at any time, indicating that you cannot have a precursor. If you have a precursor that must happen before, it's not imminent. Okay, because you watch for the precursor, then it can happen. So imminence, by definition, you cannot have a precursor, something that must happen. Okay, that doesn't mean things don't happen, but there's nothing that must happen. Well, in the 70th week, remember in the beginning of it, the Antichrist sets up a, a covenant. Okay, so in other words, if the rapture won't happen until the midpoint, certainly the, the signing of the covenant would be a precursor, would it not? And look at all the things that we know about. The second seal, peace is taken. We have the sword, famine, beasts, and pestilence at the fourth seal. We have wars and rumors of wars. We have all of these precursors that occur in the first section that would, in fact, tip people off to the fact that the rapture is coming. In fact, at the sixth seal, remember you have even the world there. Remember the sixth seal? The unregenerate are crying out. They want to be hidden from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, the point is if the rapture happens after the sixth seal, that would be a precursor. Are you with me? In other words, the people at the sixth seal, they're aware that the wrath of God is upon them. But remember in First Thessalonians it says that the wrath of God, the day of the Lord comes suddenly like a thief in the night. So there is going to be no precursor. So I think imminence is really lost in this view. And so I think it's not as strong as the pre-trib view. Now let me show you the post-trib view, and I'll be spending a little bit more time with this one now. The post-trib view, remember, they believe that in Revelation 19:11 through 16 is really talking about the rapture and the second coming. They're one event. So as Jesus descends, the saints are raptured up, but we meet them in the air and we just continue on down with him, and then he enters into the millennial kingdom. Let me talk about some of the strengths. One strength, and I'll admit this, it maintains a truly valid one parousia. When it says parousia, that is the coming of the Lord, it's one. You don't have to say, well, there's two of them. There's just one, and it happens right here. Now, I think that there's good evidence to believe in two, okay? And and I think I've laid that out, but let me just move on from that. But again, they would hold to one parousia. Two, this position sees no radical distinction between the church and Israel, Let me just respond to that. We don't really see a radical distinction between the church and Israel. And here's why. What we're saying is that the kingdom is coming to Israel. But all those who are going to partake of the kingdom of Israel have to now belong to the church. (laughs) Are, are, Are you with me? In other words, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're not going to be part of the kingdom to Israel. So again, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time and say, yes, the kingdom is coming to Israel. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask the question, is it now, Lord, that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Jesus doesn't say, where did you get that idea? He says, it's not for you to know the time and the hours that are set in my Father's hand, but you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay? So he doesn't poo-poo the idea. The kingdom is coming to Israel, but in order to be part of it, you have to be a believer and therefore be in the church. So... Um, I, I don't buy that argument. Three, it sees unity in passages like Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4. The problem with that is there really isn't unity in those passages. They're talking about two different things, at least portions of Matthew 24, um, that is verses 29 through 31. Okay, so let me give you some of the weaknesses, and I'll beat up on this position a little bit in a loving Christian sort of way. Um, 
Number one, it misses the start of the wrath of God in the broad day of the Lord. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, while they are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. And remember, we saw that that happens here. And remember, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, for God is not uh, destined us for wrath. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is tied into the day of the Lord. And if the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week, and we're not destined for the wrath, and remember, that's eschatological wrath associated with the day of the Lord, then you and I have to be exempt from that period. And so I, I think it's weak on that account. Number two, this view does not adequately explain how the millennial kingdom is populated. Now, I haven't been able to talk about this issue, so let me get into this. Let me just throw out some questions that get us thinking about it. Who enters the kingdom? Well, what I'm going to be making the case is only believers. Okay, I think it's only believers that are going to enter the millennial kingdom. Okay, Now, the kicker is, is I think we're going to have both glorified and unglorified believers. In other words, those who have a resurrected body and those who don't have a resurrected body. Okay, And I'll explain why that's significant. Well, who is in the kingdom? Well, it's interesting. We can prove that both the wicked and the just okay, are actually end up being in the kingdom. Remember the difference between being in the kingdom and entering the kingdom. In other words, at some point, we end up having wicked people in the kingdom. Now, we're not saying they entered the kingdom, but they're in it at some point because we know in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9, Satan leads a rebellion where the earth rebels against Jesus and he has to call down fire. So they're in wicked rebellion. So the question we have to ask then is, where do the wicked in the millennial kingdom come from? Okay, And they would either be coming from believers that make it into the kingdom right, and, and procreate, I'm sorry, unbelievers, or they have to be believers. So here's the case I'm going to be making, that only believers enter into the millennial kingdom, and therefore the answer to this question, where do wicked, the wicked in the millennial kingdom come from, it has to be from unglorified believers, those who are not yet in a resurrected body. Okay. Now let me lay out my case for you. And to be honest with you, it's not as stellar a case as I would like, <laughs> but I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'll give you the most evidence that I have. And First of all, to start in John 3, 5. John 3, 5, Jesus, remember, is arguing with Nicodemus and he's telling him about the kingdom of God. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Um, those who are believers, or unbelievers, I should say, will not enter into the kingdom of God. Now, of course, let's be careful. In one sense, you and I right now are members and are in positionally in the kingdom of God. But in another sense, the kingdom of God has not come. It is not fully realized because the king and the kingdom has, have not arrived. Okay, so the hard part is this. Is, can we stretch or is the implication of this that no unbeliever will ever enter into the millennial kingdom? Or is that pushing it too far? I don't know. I, I don't think it is because the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, all these things are synonymous. They certainly entail the millennial kingdom. So what I would say is this is an indicator that no one unrighteous will enter into the kingdom. And we see, remember, the same promise. Jesus makes Matthew 5.20, Matthew 7.21. No unrighteous or wicked thing will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Now let me show you one that I think is pretty powerful out of uh, Ezekiel 20, verses 33, 35, 37 through 38. And by the way, you can see the same topic in Ezekiel 34, verses 17 through about 19. And these passages, I think, are parallel to the sheep and goats judgment in Matthew 25. Okay, And so that's what I think is being described here. The Lord says this, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, 
and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered. As I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you face to face. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge from you the rebels and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they will not enter the land of Israel. Thus you will know that I am Yahweh. Most scholars believe, friend, this is referring to a future time when God enters into judgment. And notice what I have highlighted read where it says, I will make you pass under the rod. This would be a term where the shepherd would be in front of the fold and he would have to separate both the sheep and the goats. And to inspect his sheep further, he would apparently use this rod that they would have to maneuver themselves under and it would give him time to inspect them for any problems, defects, injuries, and so forth. So the whole point in that is he's very intentionally, God is going to be inspecting his people very closely. Why? Well, because he's going to purge all the rebels. They will not enter into the land. And so this is a passage that's very important because it seems to indicate if this is tied in with the Matthew 25 judgment, it's indicating that the unrighteous will not enter into the land of Israel where the kingdom is. That would be the idea. Now, one way out of that is you could say, well, they'll still be in the millennial kingdom. They just won't enter the land of Israel. You know, that just came to me last night. So <laughs> so maybe that's a way out. But nonetheless, there's maybe some wiggle room there. Uh, but now let me show you Matthew 25, and I'll just show you why it's not as clear as I would like it to be one way or the other. Matthew 25, 31 through 34 and verse 41. Notice it says, uh, Jesus says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd, uh, shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So we have this division between those who are going to enter the kingdom, the sheep, and those who are the goats. Now the issue is timing. Does this happen at one event? Or are they separated by time? And remember, we've already seen in John 5 evidence that in the Gospels, the Gospel writers will take events that are separated by thousands of years and lump them together, right? Well, let me give you an indication, first of all, that these may be separated by time. One piece of evidence post-tribulationists will throw out is this idea of eternal fire. When does eternal fire actually come? Well, in our schematic, it's after the thousand years. Remember in Revelation 20, verses 14 through 15, all whose names were not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. Well, that would seem to give credence that they're not being cast into Hades. And therefore, this judgment has to be happening at the end of the thousand years. Are you with me? But there's a kicker, and this is how I would respond to that. It's interesting, the beginning of this section is tied into the end of the 70th week, and notice it says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, okay, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is language that really has to do with him coming at the end of the 70th week and establishing the kingdom of Israel. And what's interesting is our NASB leads us somewhat astray in that it leaves out a conjunction. And I think it's an important conjunction. Notice it says here, all the nations will be gathered. Well, that all, there's actually a chi in front of it. So I think it'd be better rendered, in my opinion, at least we should be cognizant of the conjunction there. It should be, and all the nations will be 
gathered before him. The reason why I think that conjunction is important is because it ties what happens with the nations to the timing indicator here, but when the Son of Man comes. So, in other words, when does the Son of Man come with the angels? Well, that's after the 70th week. That's what we're reading about in Revelation 19, 11 through 16, the second coming, and also Matthew 24, 29 through 31. And so the point being is that would indicate that that's when this whole judgment happens. So again, I have to be honest with you, friends, I'm not convinced one way or the other, but I think the totality of the evidence would lead me to believe that unbelievers are going to be excluded from the kingdom, especially that Ezekiel 20 passage and also Ezekiel 34. But nonetheless, there's some wiggle room, okay? So that, I think, is a weakness because, after all, who's going to populate the millennial kingdom for the post-trib side if, in fact, only believers enter in? Now, let me give you the the most devastating case that I have against the post-trib position, and it's this. Why are the martyrs raised in Revelation 20, verse 4? And, and Bob has helped me with this because he brought this up with the pre-wrath, and I thought, well, gosh, this also is a problem for the post-trib too. Remember, the post-trib side is saying that the rapture and the second coming are one event, so that's what's being talked about in Revelation 19.14, and it's what happens right at the end of the 70th week. That's their rapture slash second coming, the same thing. Well, now remember, in Revelation 20, verse 4, which would be happening after the 70th week, after the rapture, you have the saints raised again. That is, the martyred saints living during this period. Those who are killed are going to be raptured. The question is, why weren't they raptured here? Why weren't they? I mean, see, you and I can answer it. We can say, well, the rapture happens here, and of course, all the believers that die during this period, they'll have to be raptured again. But they have a hard time answering it. Why weren't they raptured here in Revelation 19.14? Well, the reason why is that that's not the rapture. Okay, that's the coming of the Lord. That's the problem. So the question is, if the rapture happens at the end of the 70th week, as the post-trib position maintains, why are the martyred saints not raised in Revelation 19:11 through 16? I think it's a very difficult question for them to answer. Why, why does that not happen? Also, why are only the martyred saints talked about in Revelation 20, verse 4? Now, let me make three other points. First of all, notice rapture. At the rapture, remember I said all the saints are raised? I made a point of that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. So it's both the dead and the living. So if you're a saint, you're raised. So that means all the saints have to be raised here at Revelation 19.14. Well, then why are there any left over to be raised in Revelation 20, verse 4? Okay? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, and I think it's very devastating. Um, the other point is believers who don't die enter into the millennial kingdom, if I'm correct, in non-glorified bodies. Right? So in other words, who's going to populate this millennial kingdom for the post-trib side? You and I can answer that because we would have believers who actually survive the tribulation period who enter in the kingdom in unglorified bodies. They procreate, they have children, and these children end up sinning and they become non-believers and so forth. But if all um, in the post-trib side, who is going to populate that kingdom? I don't think they have a very good answer to that. And finally, three, only those who died during the trib need to be raised from the dead. And that's why I think it's a very strong case for the pre-trib side. Um, Let me show you Revelation 20, verse 4, one more time, and then we're going to end on some application here. Uh, John said this with Revelation 20, verse 4. He said, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The things, friends, that give uh, scholars fits in this passage is understanding who the they are. 
Okay, and what most scholars say is this, that they is so divorced from all the descriptions of the people down here that they're not necessarily related. However, David on in the Word Biblical Commentary, third volume, page 1085, did an excellent service for the saints, okay? And here's what he discovered. He discovered that often in John's literature, especially in the Apocalypse, John shows where men and women are seated positionally before he describes who they are. And he does that also with God. He shows where God is seated, and then he describes who God is. He shows where the, posi- the people are located, and then he describes who they are. He's doing the same thing here. Why is that important? Because it shows us that the they are those who were beheaded, those who didn't worship the beast, who had not received the mark on their forehead and their hand, and they came to life. So all those who came to life, the they up here are the same they down here, It's all those who died during the Great Tribulation, and it is exclusive to them. So do you see the import of that? That's very important because now we've locked in. Revelation 20, verse 4, is exclusively about the martyred saints during the Tribulation period, and they're raised after the Tribulation. So again, why aren't all the saints raised in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 if the post-tribulational view is right? That is their rapture. The post-trib rapture happens right here. Why weren't these saints, the they, that is those who beheaded, why weren't they raised there? I think it's very devastating. Revelation 20, verse 4, friends, it's about those who died during the Great Tribulation. In fact, the language is identical to those who perished during the fifth seal. There's almost verbatim, the language is the same. And so it's linking all those who died. So friends, this is a very strong case that the post-tribulational position cannot be right. Because if it was you know, there would be no uh, rapture here in Revelation 20, verse 4, but there must be. Okay, so some conclusions. The timing of the 70th week is unknown. Remember, we talked about that in Matthew 24, and therefore the broad day of the Lord is impossible to know. Uh, Remember 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3, a very important passage. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. It comes suddenly. There's no precursor to it. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction comes upon them like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. Remember, peace and safety, that can't occur here because peace and safety are going to be taken out of the way, right? Um, Labor pains, remember the term was Odin? And that comes from um, Isaiah 13.8. Well, Jesus talks about the same labor pains or Odin or birth pains, Matthew 24.8. But all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. So here's a link between what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying. The labor pains and birth pains are Odin. And even the pre-wrath scholars agree that Matthew 24, 8 is referring to what happens at the beginning of the 70th week. And therefore, the day of the Lord happens in the beginning. Okay? And that's why we have to have a pre-tribulational rapture. Number two, the wrath of God is present during the first portion of the tribulation. Therefore, the church cannot be here. Right? So here we have, remember we had the peace removed at the second seal, the sword, famine, peace, and pestilence. Remember that? Anytime you saw those things, the sword, the beast, uh, the pestilence, you had the wrath of God. We showed passage after passage after passage. So the wrath of God has to be present in the first uh, seals and therefore the beginning of the tribulation period. Revelation 7.14, which is the rapture of the pre-wrath church. Revelation 14.1 through 5 is the rapture of the mid-trib church, of their position. And Revelation 19.11 through 16, that's the position of the post-trib, their rapture. Well, they cannot be the rapture of the church, and we've proven that. The rapture must occur prior to the 70th week. So that's the pre-wrath rapture. There's the mid-trib rapture, and there is the post-trib rapture, and yet we've proven that none of those can, in fact, be the rapture. 
Okay, Revelation 7.14, the pre-wrath side, remember we talked about that participle, talked about them coming out. They're continuously coming out. Why? Why were they coming out of the tribulation continuously? Because they're being martyred. Not because, because if you remember the rapture, if they were raptured, it would be one event. But it was a present tense participle indicating they were continually coming out. Why? Well, because they were being killed as time went on. And so, again, it's very devastating. These are not the rapture, friends, and therefore we have to look elsewhere. For the great tribulation must last three and a half years. Now, several reasons, but um, notice this one. Because the nations are gathered by the beast at the sixth bowl. Okay, remember the sixth bowl happens at the very end of the 70th week, right? Well, the pre-wrath said that the, remember they said um, that he's handcuffed, that is the beast. They think he's handcuffed here. Well, if the beast is handcuffed here, how is he leading to the nations against Israel here at the sixth bowl? It doesn't make any sense. Okay, Revelation 13.5, very important. It says that the Antichrist reigns for three and a half years. The pre-wrath has to say that's wrong. He doesn't really do that for three and a half years. Well, to me, that's chutzpah. See, the pre-trib position can say Matthew 24.21, the, the great tribulation is cut short, but we affirm Revelation 13.5 is correct as well, that, it's, that what it's cut short to is three and a half years. And therefore, we affirm Revelation 13.5 and Matthew 24.21. There's no contradiction. And finally, just two more, or just a few more. Matthew 24, 31 is not the rapture of the church, but the fulfillment of Isaiah 27, 12 through 13, the regathering of Israel. Remember, we said that that was the only Old Testament passage in the entire Bible, right? The, the entire Old Testament that mentions a great trumpet. And we, we showed a lot of evidence for that. Matthew 24, 29 says that the second coming occurs immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now, think about why that's a problem to the pre-wrath side. Their great tribulation, remember the great tribulation, we've proven it lasts for three and a half years. Well, if, if the pre-wrath believes Matthew 24, 29 is the rapture, well, it can only happen immediately after the tribulation. Well, therefore, it has to happen after here. And that's why we say Matthew 24, 29 isn't the rapture, but it's the second coming. Okay, it's very devastating to the pre-wrath side. And again, the, the great tribulation lasts three and a half years. Seven times we saw in the scriptures that it lasts three and a half years. Finally, no matter what side you're on, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, partial rapture, whatever you, no, partial rapture is off the ranch. Whatever side you hold to in the rapture positions, friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you know that Jesus is faithful to all of his promises. And that's the most important thing. His kingdom is coming to Israel, but it is for every Jew and Gentile that believes in him. So friends, if you're listening and you're a pre-wrath brother, we love you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're all right in our book. And the big thing is Jesus is going to be faithful. So friends, let me just say this. Let's not argue about the seven years. At the end of the day, the seven years are very minuscule in light of all of eternity. It's really not that important. But yet, um, it's not as important as other things. Let's put it that way. Every doctrine is important, but it's not an essential. So let me, why does this matter? Why does eschatology matter? Well, eschatology, friends, teaches the people of God to forsake this life and again to live for the king and his kingdom because he is faithful to his promises. Think about the words that were said about Abraham in Romans 4.20. Now, this has to do with his saving faith, but it has to do with what? The promises of God. Romans 4.20, about Abraham, it says, Yet with the respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Friends, you and I can be fully assured that what God has promised in these eschatological passages, he will perform. And one thing that I've come in my own walk, when I've been studying these passages, I've been more and more amazed at how profound and how accurate the scriptures are. 
Do you know what I mean? They just fit together more like a glove every time I examine them. And if I ever have problems, the problem's with me, not the scriptures, okay? Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, again, Jesus says you will not enter the kingdom of God. So these eschatological passages tell us, again, just like my professor said to his kids, what are you living for? Are you living for the new Jerusalem, the king and the kingdom that's coming? Or are you living for things in this world? And so finally, let me just leave you with these words. Hebrews 12.1, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, think about all those in the uh, hall, of, uh, hall of Fame of Faith that surround us in the heavenlies. It says, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Friends, that's what eschatology tells us. That's how it applies to our lives. These things are coming. They're true. And for the Christian, the best is yet to come. With that, I will take your questions and comments. I've only got one thing to say. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Um, by the way, I want to thank um, everybody. Clap for Robert. Uh, I give Robert a hand. Uh, I tell you, Robert's here every Tuesday, and he's setting up, and he just does a lot of work. So give Robert a big hand for always setting stuff up. For, I really appreciate him. So. And like Bob said, he's the only other person here that can, well, Rick can, but uh, you guys are about the only ones that can figure out our sound system. So um, I'm really grateful. So thanks for all the help. So um, does anybody have any thoughts? or? Uh, when you were talking about uh, the millennial reign, and yeah. you were referring to Zechariah 14, 18, you talked about the Feast of Booths. Yeah. And... We see there is an example of something that was kept in the Old Covenant, yeah. not kept in the church age, but then it's reinstituted again yeah. in the millennium. Um, I, I think there's apparently some other things that are reinstituted again, too. But what really uh, has me puzzled, when you go down to verse 21, it talks about sacrifices again. Mm. And uh, what is that all about? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how long ago. Let me just address that, though, because it's a great question because it ties into the last ten chapters of Ezekiel as well because you see this millennial kingdom. And the thing that we have to realize about the sacrificial system, and I want to be careful how we say this, but the sacrificial system, remember, the sacrifices never did provide atonement. Okay, Hebrews 10 says the blood of bulls and goats could never provide atonement. And so the issue is, is we have to realize that God commanded those things to be done, but the Israelite who did them, if they fell into ritual where if they thought they were, you know, I'm saying this facetiously a little bit, but if they just put the goat in the offering plate, they were good for the week, they were good to go. If they were into that ritualism, they were not Yahweh's. But when they slaughtered that goat or that lamb, the, the Israelite that had salvation was the Israelite who said, Yahweh will one day do this for me. And I know, um, as Job said, my Redeemer lives. These are the men and women who believe that one day Messiah would come and do that. They believed in the promises of God. And that's what the Old Testament is about. The Old Testament prophets, they weren't just haphazard writings. They were talking about doctrine of, they were talking about the doctrines of Messiah, who he was, what he would do, and what he would accomplish. And so, if we remember that the sacrifices in the Old Covenant merely look forward, to the salvation that Messiah would bring, they were never efficacious. They merely pointed forward. Then why can we not say in the millennial kingdom that they're still not efficacious? Because they never were. 
but they merely look back and they commemorate what the Messiah had done. So in the Old Covenant, they look forward. In the, in the, new, uh, in the Millennial Kingdom, they'll be looking back, but they were never efficacious, but they always pointed to the one who deserves all glory for his once-for-all sacrifice, that is Jesus. That's what they're always all about. And so I think that that's how I would answer that. Yeah, I, think, I don't think there's a way to spiritualize it. I think that they're going to happen. And, well, some people would just say that that's Ezekiel's way of describing idealized worship. Yeah. But as I've said several times, as far as exactly what happens during the millennium, you've got to remember that Jesus Christ will actually be here on earth. Yeah. And he can tell us. <laughs> that will be very nice. We won't have to. <laughs> that will be a benefit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that's a great question, Norm. I th- yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, thanks, everyone. <laughs>